This is Christ the Center, episode 43. Today we speak with Steve Nichols about getting the blues. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, a weekly conversation of Reformed theology. My name is Camden Busey. I have with me today, here in the studio, James Dalzell, who's a Ph.D. student at Westminster Theological Seminary. Good morning, James. Good morning. I also have Jeff Waddington, who's teacher of the congregation at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Ringo's, New Jersey. How are you doing, Jim? Jeff? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I'm doing well. Thank you. Uh, who you hear laughing in the background is the person who I already named, Jim Cassidy, who's a pastor at Calvary OPC in Ringo's. Good morning, Jim. Jeff's doing great, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome <laughs> for that one. <laughs> we also have Nick Batzig, of course, who's interim pastor at Christ the King PCA in Conshohocken, Pennsylvania. It's good to have you on, Nick. Thanks, Camden. And our guest today, uh, we're very excited to have the author of Getting the Blues, Stephen J. Nichols, who is Research Professor of Christianity and Culture at Lancaster Bible College. He's also Adjunct Professor of Church History at Westminster Theological Seminary. Good morning, Steve. It's great to have you. Oh, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Yes, well, we're really interested to talk today. It's kind of a different program. We're going to be speaking about this book, but it contains much uh, blues history uh, on its way towards providing uh, somewhat of a theology of suffering and salvation. And it's very uh, an excellent book, and we'll get to that in a moment. But we, of course, need to stop and pause and talk about any new publications or conferences or even any old publications that we'd like to mention for our listeners this morning. Well, uh, there's going to be, uh, coming out this month, a, uh, I believe it's a reprinting or an ex- it's an expanded edition of the book, The Writings of John Calvin, written by Wilfred de Graeff and edited by Lyle Birma of Calvin Theological Seminary. So that would be a, a helpful book for those wanting to delve into the writings of Calvin beyond the Institutes and beyond the Commentaries. It's worth looking at. Then there's uh, uh, a new book by Al Mohler called Desire and Deceit, The Real Cost of the New Sexual Tolerance. Uh, anything by Dr. Mohler is going to be uh, worth reading. And then uh, finally, one, the, uh, there is a uh, new commentary on, yeah, let me find, on Isaiah in the Evangelical Press Series. It's a two-volume commentary by John Mackay. I think it would be pronounced Mackay, but uh, uh, you'll be interested in that. That'll be coming out this month as well. So if you're interested in, in commentaries on Isaiah, or as they say in the UK, Isaiah, uh, this is a, that's a commentary to look for. I think Lane Keister so, had mentioned when he was speaking about commentaries on Isaiah that uh, the current trend is it's getting more and more popular to see single authorship. Is that true? You notice that? Yeah, that's 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 what uh, I I understand uh, for rhetorical and literary reasons. Uh, they don't, uh, or at least they look at the book as being unified. I don't know that they always think that there's one author. Okay. Okay. They're, so they're less inclined to slice and dice the book, but uh, there may be multiple authors, uh, even if they see the book as unified. Yeah. Well, that's good. <laughs> What else? Uh, what else is uh, worthy of mentioning today? Well, Camden, I wanted to mention August Lesurf's introduction of Reform dogmatics. Um, Lesurf, just for our listeners, is spelled L-E-C-E-R-F. And um, actually, the man that discipled me about seven years ago mentioned it to me and said, 
it was remarkable that Le Cerf was a, a French um, a professor at the University of Paris, and um, the guy that had recommended it said, it's remarkable how much he sounds like Van Til. Now, he had written this book in, uh, I think, 1931, somewhere, it was published, first published before 1940, and so seven years later, I finally started reading it, and... Um, it, it really is amazing how similar it is to Van Til. And I looked in the the index in the back, and he quotes Calvin, Bovink, and Kuiper more than probably anyone else in this book. So mm. I really think our listeners would appreciate this work. Um, it's a little heavier philosophically, maybe, um, than some dogmatics. But anyway, I wanted to recommend that. I think Baker published it. I don't think it's in print anymore, but there are um, several copies at Amazon. Was he leaning on the scholastics at all as well? You know, I, I don't think so, really. I think he's really leaning on Calvin mm-hmm. and giving you a consistent, reformed philosophy um, as developed out of Calvin. I mean, I, I really think I think it's about as close to Van Til as what, you're find, at what you'll find. So that is our uh, older book of the week, Auguste Le Cerf. Is there anything else we'd like to mention? Uh, Jim, you'd mentioned that there's going to be some uh, some lectures given at Princeton. It's a- uh, by the time these uh, lectures air, uh, or by the time this, <laughs> yeah. this episode airs, be uh, the lectures will be over. And uh, But they will be online, I understand. So uh, they are the stone lectures here at Princeton Seminary given by George Marsden on various aspects of the life and thought of Jonathan Edwards. I attended the, uh, one of them yesterday uh, on the relationship be- uh, between the world views of Jonathan Edwards and Benjamin Franklin, which was a very interesting um, lecture that was given by Dr. Marsden. So uh, these, these lectures will be worth listening to. Um, there may be a publication with them in the future. I don't know, but I do understand that these will be available online sometime uh, within the, the near future. So keep a keep an eye out at, on the uh, uh, Princeton Seminary website. Hmm. Excellent. Well, that sounds like it's about it for today, uh, which leads us into our discussion of this new book from Brazos Press. Uh, Getting the Blues, What Blues Music Teaches Us About Suffering and Salvation, written by Stephen J. Nichols, our guest today. Uh, Steve, now I'm going to ask you uh, a question taken right off the title of your first chapter. And this is, I think, a question at the forefront of a lot of readers' minds. Uh, what hath Mississippi to do with Jerusalem? Yeah, I was trying to, you know, how many uh, different spins can we quote <laughs> the there? It's got quite a long life. Um, yeah, and, you know, one of the interesting things about that is it was a, the question is really raising, what I think the question is doing is raising uh, for, especially American evangelicalism, that tends to be fairly white, fairly sort of suburban in its outlook. And so we sort of have these epicenters, you know, it used to be Wheaton was sort of the epicenter, and now I guess Colorado Springs is sort of the epicenter. And that's sort of, I think for many American evangelicals, and I think more here in terms of outside of reform circles for the most part, there tends to be that particular cultural look and that particular cultural atmosphere, and that tends to shape the way folks read the Bible, think about their theology, think about church. 
And so the question is, well, what would the, what would the Mississippi Delta have to contribute to this Colorado Springs, uh, Wheaton American evangelicalism? And, um, and essentially it's raising the question, can we learn something in terms of hermeneutics, in terms of theology, from blues music and blues culture? And, of course, I think we can, but I think what I want to do is sort of confront us with that question in the first place so that we uh, sort of gear up for uh, something that we might not uh, anticipate to find. <laughs> Yeah. And one thing that I really appreciated this, I'm a big fan of blues music myself and also of Reformed Theology, so naturally this is a book I wanted to pick up when it came out. But you actually go into quite a bit of detail about several um, various you know, key figures in the development of blues, uh, some of which, of course, Robert Johnson, Sun House, you talk about Muddy Waters. Uh, who were these guys and, and uh, why is it that their story, or how does their story seem to parallel that of the Christian's life? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, when you talk about the blues, you've got all kinds of styles. Of course, you've got the sort of Chicago blues and the electric blues, and then blues made its way over to Britain in the 50s and 60s and, and really had a significant impact on sort of the history of 20th century rock and roll. Yeah. Rolling Stones. Uh, Zeppelin. And, you know, yeah, Man- Manfred Mann, the Beatles, all these all these um, groups were really learning their music from uh, the blues. They were really starting out as acoustic guitarists, a lot of these folks back in the, in the 50s. And then it sort of gets plugged in and becomes rock and roll. But the, the slice of blues that I looked at was uh, the early blues. And so this would be that sort of World War One to World War II era of the Mississippi Delta. And that's, the, that's pretty raw... <laughs> Uh, music in there, and, and and these are sort of the big legends. Robert Johnson, who was significant impact. You know, Eric Clapton always talks about him as this. Right. Muddy Waters. Muddy Waters has a song that has the lyric "Rolling Stone," that of course the band picks up for their name. Mm-hmm. And Bob Dylan as well. Yeah, Bob Dylan picks up on that, and and so so I looked at that group, and the other interesting thing about that group is, you know, they all learned music in the church. And their sort of musical world was uh, the spirituals, the Gospels. And coming out of that, and coming out of that culture, uh, there's a recent book on Flannery O'Connor, that's a great title, called The Christ-Haunted South. And I think in many ways, blues is a very Christ-haunted music, because uh, this, a lot of their sort of impetus was there uh, in the church, and yet even had people who went back and forth, like Thomas Dorsey, who has that great, you know, precious Lord, take my hand, mm-hmm. this wonderful sort of maybe king of gospel music. Well, before he was yeah. Thomas A. Dorsey, he was Barrel House Tom. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, it sort of works both ways. You know, the, the blues is sort of better because of the spirituals, but then also some of those spirituals... It, it it goes washes back, and the blues. Uh, some of the gospel spiritual writers took the blues with them into the spirituals. One thing that you uh, pick up on as well is a lot of the psalms and how they're, and even I guess you could say lamentations and how uh, we have songs of lament throughout Scripture. So in a lot of ways, blues music has similar uh, affinity to the human condition, wanting to sing in order to express your suffering and sorrow. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really true. And, you know, I, I kind of picture 
Well, I tell you how this was working. While I was while I was working through this, and this was way back in the early stages, I'm just sort of listening to the blues. I was reading, I was sort of in my process of reading through the Bible, and I was at Ruth. And so here I'm reading the, the Naomi story. And, uh, you know, when Naomi comes back, uh, and they say, oh, is it Naomi? You know, they, they can't, they're wondering if it's really, you know, it's been a decade plus. And she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Right. This sort of play on the words there, not pleasant, but bitter. And then she says, uh, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. And I remember reading that, and I thought to myself, that's a blues lyric. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Great lyric. <laughs> I went away full, and I came back empty. And um, and I think that's a way of saying that the blues does have a way of resonating with the human condition. It, it becomes a very authentic music because it speaks very truthfully about the human condition. And um, and you catch this. And and I think in my own reading of scripture, I think I'm better off reading uh, in my reading a better reader uh, because of sort of getting tuned into some of these blues and, and um, they've, they've helped me, I think. This, this goes to your comment there, Steve, goes to a question I was going to have for you, which is you made the statement of w- what does, you know, Colorado Springs have to learn hermeneutically uh, from blues? Is this, is this what you mean by that? Yeah, I think it is. You know, I had um, one of my students, uh, we have a graduate program at the college, and every once in a while I supervise master's theses, and I had a Chinese student um, who was actually in the Chinese church and came over and studied with us for a while and did his master's degree. And he wrote on some gospel texts and persecution and gospel texts. And it was very fascinating, of course, reading this, written by... uh, Chinese pastor. And it really just struck me that there are just certain things in Scripture that we don't connect with because of our limited experience. And I don't want to make this all existential here, but, you know, Naomi is an ancient Near Eastern widow. I really don't have much in common with an ancient Near Eastern widow. Um, So how do I sort of connect with her story unless I develop some sense of a sympathetic, uh, as a sympathetic reader. And I think uh, the more we can expose ourselves to other cultures, other readings, to sort of broaden out our, our sensibilities, uh, sort of expand our horizons beyond just our particular way of looking at the world, I think we're better off for it. You know? and, and like I say, we have this sort of monolithic American evangelicalism out there that, uh, you know, everything's sort of peachy and rosy, and uh, especially when you look at a lot of music, you know, it's sort of that happy-clappy stuff. Yeah. It, it doesn't really pick up, the, as you were talking about, the, the sort of song of lament, you know. And, and I know Mike, Mike Horton has, has written on this, and I think he's written pretty persuasively about um, uh, sort of contemporary American church music, as sometimes being uh, fairly one-sided. They even talk about that fairly often in the White Horse Inn. They mention this tendency to call a funeral a celebration and try not to (laughs) you know, have any elements of suffering or sorrow uh, during the funeral because it's supposed to be a happy time. And in some sense it is that the person has returned and gets to stand in front of their Lord, provided they're a believer. But at the same time, there's something that the Bible (laughs) is totally okay with 
in us uh, uh, expressing our suffering and our sorrow. Yeah. Now, it's one thing you mentioned early on is uh, this phrase. I really like this phrase: um, theology in a minor key. And what do you? What exactly are you getting at there? Uh, and 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 what do you mean by that phrase? Yeah, I, you know, theology in a minor key. Uh, of course, I, I, this is the irony. I have no musical background. <laughs> really, I know nothing about music. <laughs> <yet>. <laughs> And I probably shouldn't even be making this admission, but I'm essentially tone deaf. <laughs> so, you know, my wife, it just it cracks her up all the time when she thinks about, um, like, writing about music and talking about music. And But anyway, and there were a lot of points. I probably shouldn't be saying these things. This is like, you know, pulling the, uh, the, sales are plummeting, the curtain yeah. back. Yeah, revelations. <laughs> there's no wizard back there. There's just a, yeah, there's just a, you know, little, short little ball guy pulling <laughs> levers. Um but I'll be writing along, and I, you know, I'll make this line uh, something to do with the music, and I say to my wife, "Is this right? Yeah, <laughs> do I have this right?" You know. But anyway, uh, the minor key, is, of course, picks up, you know, what what blues music does. It sort right. of flattens these notes. And what I'm after with that is um, a sort of recognizing that there is not this. Uh, sort of recognizing the limitations that are part of the human condition. You know, I think so much of, of modernity and whatever we're in right now in American culture is so bent on this idea of progress and betterment and, you know, uh, everything's better, everything's getting better, we're, we're accomplishing all these things. And I look at that as almost, and this is somewhat ironic, it's almost as if we are rebelling against our curse, that there is a sense in which there are these limits that are placed on us because of life under the curse. And uh, I sort of have this conception of embracing the curse, not in the terms of, you know, sinning boldly for the fun of it, sure. but just simply recognizing that there are limits in the human condition. And, of course, as we embrace the curse, I think that gives us a further call to embrace the cross. But even the cross, you know, this is where I think Luther's theology is so powerful. And Luther would have made a good blues man, by the way. Too. You're preempting I, my question. You're preempting my question, Steve. <laughs> I had a theology of the cross question for you. So you'd say well, well, see, Luther would be a monk with a mallet and a guitar. <laughs> well, I got a funny Luther story. If we have time, I'll Go tell ahead. you too. Yep. But anyway, well, well, let me just this this point I'm trying to make. I mean, Luther says the cross is so powerful because. This is the weakness. This is the weakness of God on the cross. And uh, in that weakness, of course, is our redemption. And so I think even getting a sense of what the cross was about, you know, not just, not just the curse, but also the cross. And so I think theolo- that's what I sort of mean by a theology of minor key. Wait, quick question, or a quick story about this. About, I guess it was three or four years back, I had this radio interview with uh, New Mexico Station in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And it was an hour-long program, and I was the first half, and it was about, it was Reformation Day. It was when that new Luther movie came out, uh, and so it was about Luther. I was the first half of the show. The second half of the show was Striper, <laughs> and I didn't even know Striper was still around. <laughs> and, this, and whoever was doing the interview had the bright idea that for the middle 10 minutes, we should be on together. <laughs> oh, wow. So, all I could, so you do great. have all music background. Of, Oh yeah, sure. So my, you're an my adjunct, adjunct member. You've worked, of you've worked with Striper. 
I've worked with, but all, and all I could think to say was, well, all I could think to say to these guys was, well, Luther did play the lute, which was a precursor to the guitar, so they hey. actually thought that was pretty cool. So there you go. Now Striper are, are uh, Luther fans. Now, one of the one of the big uh, rumors or legends in blues music, uh, it, you find this as you mentioned, picked up in the the Coen Brothers film "Oh Brother, Where Art Thou," yeah. and where we yeah. get the song yeah. "Crossroads," from which right. Eric Clapton names his rehab center, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, is that uh, Robert Johnson or somebody apparently sold their soul to the devil? Down at the crossroads, in order to be able to play guitar, could you give us some uh, yeah. background to that to that uh, legend and uh, what's going on there? Yeah, well, there were a lot of things that were happening that sort of gave rise to the legend, and then I think what happened is once the legend sort of came up, Robert Johnson then sort of appropriated it and even gave it more life. Mm. But actually, one of the early on figures who started the legend was Muddy Waters, and Muddy Waters would say that he would be playing in these clubs, you know, and they'd take a break, and they'd set their instruments down and go outside, and and Robert Johnson, who's sitting there in the audience watching them, would go up and pick up their guitars and start to try to imitate it, and it would just sound absolutely awful. <laughs> and people would, like, boo him off the stage and everything, and so Robert Johnson disappears for a couple of years. Well, then all of a sudden he comes back, and he can just play like, you know, he blows muddy waters away. Well, of course, the only explanation is he sold his soul to the devil. <laughs> and there was, this, um, there was this African tradition of Legba, and so you'd go to the crossroads, and, you'd, and Legba, who was sort of this, um, not really an evil demon, sort of a mischievous demon in the African traditions, who was sort of a trickster deity, is Legba. And there's a lot of these folk traditions that have these trickster deities, and uh, Legba, th- that sort of Legba myth, carries on in the south just gets interpreted as satan and so there were a lot of these you know go to the crossroads and make the deal with the devil for whatever you wanted Mm -hmm. so i you know i went to the crossroads there in clarksdale mississippi and i took my laptop and i waited until midnight really satan never showed i'm just joking (laughs) (laughs) no i i think it was Obviously, uh, I think what it was was there were these sort of myths in the air, some words, some people started talking about it, and then Robert Johnson sort of appropriated it. It's sort of like the hip-hop artists today who have the bad boy image, and, you know, they live in mansions and kind of thing. So so I'm not sure. I don't know if there's a lot of credence to it. I'm still reading your Jesus Made in America, but I have a question about the history the history of the blues in America and what was the foundational ecclesiastical setting there? Because I know so little about the African-American church, um, more than, you know, just passing comments that I've heard. Most of these were either these sort of quasi-charismatic churches or a lot of the ones in Mississippi that these blues guys were part of were part of what's called Missionary Baptist Church. And uh, a lot of those were started in the post-Civil War by uh, Southern Baptists who would uh, sort of fund and, and either give property or, or fund for a building to put these Baptist churches in, primarily for blacks, and they'd be called Missionary Baptist Churches. Um, and then, of course, once, once uh, post-Azusa Street and the rise of like Church of God and some of those in the South, 
you have a lot of those types of churches too. But most of the ones in the Mississippi Delta tend to be these missionary Baptist type churches. But these are, you know, obviously you have an untrained uh, clergy. Uh, they're very heavy on music, very matriarchal, except, of course, the pastor. And, um, you know, it's sort of a, not all that different from a typical sort of country, southern black church uh, today. Uh, I would say, by and large, theologically, we're looking at more the Methodist, Wesleyan, Arminian vein of things, and, okay. uh, you know, fairly loose in terms of ecclesiastical structures, polity, all that kind of stuff. And and then my other question is, in that in that sphere, where does gospel and blues intersect? Where do they, you know, yeah. how do they relate to one another? Well, there's two theses out there. One is, like, the blues is the devil's music, and it comes from these, you know, selling your soul to the devil and all. And then gospel is God's music, so there's, so there's sort of the antithesis thesis. Uh, then there was uh, James Cone, who wrote a book about 15, 20 right. years back, maybe, called The Spirituals and the Blues, and he argued for more of a symbiosis in that book. And that's sort of the view I take, and, I, and I'm not necessarily talking about the musicality here as much as sort of the content, and I think in that sure. early blues, they're very much influenced lyrically and content-wise by spirituals. Now, once it starts to get uh, commercialized, and once it starts to, and this is even in the 1910s, once it starts to get commercialized, the lyrics really take this sort of twist, and they, there's, it's full of double entendres, and it becomes very sort of sexually charged lyrics. So there is that sort of, there are different types of blues songs that are out there. Um, and, you know, as it, beca- like I say, as it becomes more commercial and as it sort of moves along, and then especially once it sort of gets plugged in and, and post-World War II, uh, then a lot of that heavy gospel content begins to trail off. But, but like people like Steve sure. Turner... And uh, Steve Turner, you know, I think a lot of us at Westminster, we, of course, Bill Edgar talks about this stuff all the time. And I remember in, a, in one of Bill Edgar's classes, he had us read Steve Turner's book, Highway to Heaven, I think it's called. And uh, it's this sort of history of the redemption theme in rock and roll, 60s to the whenever that book was published. But he roots it back in the spirituals to the blues, and then you go to jazz, and then you go to rock and roll, and that's sort of the history of 20... And country music, of course, is in there, too, uh, coming out of the blues. Um, Jimmy Rogers, who's sort of considered one of the fathers of country music, was also a blues man, and his music is really blues. So you do see this sort of um, residue, if you will, of the spirituals, even in rock and roll, this sort of fixation on redemption themes. Right. Now, is that how you would go about... uh harmonizing the curse and the cross, as you go on to say, through the redemption themes found in these songs? I think so. And I think, you know, obviously the cursed business, the sort of sin and suffering part, gets the lion's share in blues. And I don't want to over-interpret these songs. You know, I don't want to make them all into these sort of uh, uh, good Reformed theologians. But you can't... I think it would be also a problem to under-interpret some of these songs. Sure. You know, uh, I forget who made the case, but, but you hear a lot of these, Lord have mercy, especially in the early blues. And right. there's two ways you could look at that. You could say, well, it's sort of musical filler, so we needed a few beats, so we add um, 
See, now right now I'm going to ask my wife, did I say that properly? <laughs> we needed a few beats and we added, Lord have mercy, you know. So it's just sort of musical filler. Mm-hmm. Or you could say, well, no, that really gets at the sort of cry of the soul there for mercy. Mm-hmm. Um, but sin is definitely, you know, there's this Robert Johnson song called Drunken Hearted Man, and he's got this great line in there, and he says, and sin was the cause of it all. And it's essentially mm-hmm. a statement of original sin. Wow. So they had a, height, a very heightened awareness of sin. I think they also had an awareness of redemption. It just tended to be a little bit more latent. And um, mm. you know, I don't want to make these people out more than they are, but it's, um, Duke Ellington did this wonderful musical history of, of American blacks called Black, Brown, Beige. It's this very complicated, both musically and philosophically, piece he put together. And in there, he had a song called Come Sunday, and originally it had no lyrics. Then he wrote lyrics for it, and of course, Mahalia Jackson did the singing in the the original recording. And it's this beautiful song, Come Sunday, and it's not just talking about, it it is talking about Sunday as like the rest day of the week, but it turns Sunday into the metaphor of the resurrection. And so it's it's this cry for the resurrection and redemption, and it's a beautiful song come Sunday and it has flashbacks to the Exodus you know Lord please see my people through so it's just a great little piece not much lyrics to it but a great little piece come Sunday hey Jeff or uh, Steve rather, I have a question oh could could you sorry is there I mean you mentioned the the previous work of James Cone um, mm-hmm. is, yeah. what is the relationship of I mean I think some people might be inherently suspicious of blues simply because it's been yeah. sort of um claimed by black liberation theology and yet you're kind of painting yeah. a picture of it that really yeah. antedates black liberation theology in a way that really it really yeah. was a thing yeah. in itself before before the rise of those theologies right yeah i think so i think um you know to me um i think it's much more helpful to lodge it in a different context altogether hmm. uh i found this book by dwight callahan pretty helpful it's a yale university press book called the talking book and it's about how African Americans read the Bible. And I found it a really fascinating book. But he makes the case in there, and this is, you know, everybody sort of sees this, the, the, by and large, the, mo- the dominant motif in African American religion, Civil War, post-Civil War, is, of course, the Exodus motif. But he, uh, what, what um, I think Callahan does that's helpful is, he takes that Exodus motif, I mean, it even shows up in King, Martin Luther King Jr. speeches, right? Hmm. But he takes that Exodus motif and shows how it really is behind the um, spirituals. And I think you can make a case then that that Exodus motif then comes up in the blues. And so when you're looking at that, truly the Exodus motif is, you know, metaphorical of freedom from an oppressive system. But the real emphasis of the Exodus motif is redemption and becoming God's people, uh, enjoying God's promise. And I think that's where liberation theology sort of abuses, absolutely abuses that Exodus motif. I don't see the same type of abuse of it in the blues. Hmm. I think they have a sense of, of soteriological redemption not social redemption. Right, they'll talk about, like so. you, me- you mentioned, the, the lyric, speaking of sin. Yes. Yeah, they'll talk about sin. I mean, these guys definitely knew sin as sin, not just the sort of social ill that 
sin is a metaphor for. So I think that uh, there's a much, like I say, you know, to me, the beauty of the blues is its authenticity, speaking truthfully about the human condition. Mm-hmm. And we don't always see that. And I, I don't think liberation theology speaks truthfully to the human condition. Now, is there so that's a big difference? But. Would you say that there is an eschatology built into a lot of blues music, a kind of a hope for the future and what will yeah. what will come? Yeah, that's and I think that's part of what's going on in the Come Sunday. Yeah, and um, and it's an eschatology that's a, you know sort of a realized eschatology. There's this great Funhouse is one of the blues. I don't think we talked about him. No, Funhouse, great blues man, and. He, he sort of got discovered, and then he sort of disappeared again, and he got rediscovered and was sort of trotted around to all these um, jazz festivals and rock festivals in the 60s and 70s. And he did a farewell concert in London at the 100 Club, and uh, it's this great recording. If you can track it down, it's a wonderful CD, because it's got him talking in, in it and everything. And, and in there, he's talking about uh, the mercy of God. And he says, you know, I know uh, that, 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 Lord, that God is merciful. I know God has mercy. I know in the future that everything's going to be set right. And then he says, I'm just looking for a little bit of that mercy now. <laughs> you know, and so there is this sense of um, a, a sort of a realized eschatology in the blues, which I find really interesting. And, and this is the metaphor of the Come Sunday Sunday, and, and I think if you put yourself into the shoes here, Sunday was really, uh, they understood the Sunday as a day of Sabbath, hmm. as a day of rest, I think much more so than we do. Yeah. And it was, partly, it was partly the hard life. It was also, they're in a black church, and there's no white person there. There's no overseer there to suppress them. They, they, there really is a freedom and a true rest, which would be the notion of peace in that church mm. on a Sunday. And so that becomes then the, the sort of tangible um, a token promise of the rest, the Sabbath rest that is to come in the future, and the freedom. You know. so, so when you look at these, uh, these ideas of Sunday or freedom or even like the spirituals, in terms of, you know, the sweet by-and-by, they're holding on to that, I think, in a very real, palpable way, and they're also looking for sort of foreshadowings of that in this life. So I think there's a a fascinating eschatology there. Hmm. Now, we mentioned earlier that we want to get some album recommendations. What are some of the albums that you brought up in the book and, and others maybe not in the book? that you would recommend going to in order to get a good feel for for what you're addressing? Well, I like the older stuff, like the early Delta Blue stuff, and there are a couple of uh, music companies that are really good at, at re- redoing that old stuff. Uh, Rounder Records puts out some really good stuff. Uh, but I think, um, you know, the standards, of course, are Sunhouse, Charlie Patton, uh, Muddy Waters, Robert Johnson, and they all have these sort of anthologies right. that are out. Uh, but I, I think some of the other stuff is really interesting. Like there's this, this rounder, uh, they put out a, um, uh, a wonderful CD called Mississippi Saints and Sinners, and it's got 
clips from black preachers in the 1930s. It's got black congregations singing spirituals. It's got some of this, uh, the blues uh, music from, you know, all the standards. And I think more than anything, that CD probably gives you a nice slice of the full dimension of African-American life in the uh, pre-World War II Delta. And then, of course, there's B.B. King, who oh, grew up yeah. in the Delta and, and is, you know, really one of the sort of the last blues men. And he actually, there's a new CD of his that just came out that was produced by T-Bone Burnett, and he was the one who did the soundtrack for Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Mm -hmm. And he's just done some great, he's a producer, he's just done some great stuff. But that's called One Kind Favor, and it's just, it's classic B.B. King, so that might be a good one. It's sort of like, um, you know, if you pick up a Charlie Patton, it's really raspy vocals. You're going to have a hard time with it. It's, it's sort of like, you know, the first time you drink coffee, you might not want to go for, you know, the uh, uh, upper shelf Starbucks. You might want to start off with something a little mild <laughs> to sort of introduce you to it. <laughs> so, so maybe gateway a BB King is a nice gateway. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to go right for the hard stuff. You want to sort of build up your system. So, well, so maybe that BB King is a good place. Jeff, you bring up you bring yeah. up introducing people to blues, and I'm gonna I'm gonna guess that probably like myself, most most listeners uh, are are not blues men or haven't listened to it or may not even be that interested. And I think of your your great nemesis uh, on this issue, uh, uh, Doctor Thomas uh, at Reformed Theological Seminary. Yeah. Who who is who is ever ready to be your uh, the protagonist on this issue? And uh, I'm I'm wondering uh, which, which you know now I I know you Steve and I know that you you enjoy in London even song at Westminster Abbey, uh, yeah. and, and yet on the same day you actually claim that you go looking for blues. And now, and, and I found them too. Yeah, yeah. well, that, well, yeah, and I knew that you would, but the, that, the, 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 but for the perplexed, and I might, I mean, I'm not, maybe I'm not yeah, as perplexed well, as as Thomas, but for the perplexed, uh, what what do you say, or do you just are you just hopeless about those people? Well, yeah, you know, the problem with Derek, and um, he really is a lost cause. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Eric is he's just well, what can we say? He's just so one dimensional. I mean that's really the problem with Derek. <laughs> he lacks complexity, subtlety, nuance. And uh, I love him. I I I'm glad he's my friend, but I, I pray for him daily. I really do. If you're Carl Truman, you, there's a one word answer to one word answer to that question. He's Welsh. Yeah. Well, so that's so, that's so provincial that discrimination, isn't it? Yeah, I'm not advocating that. I'm just saying what uh, good Professor Truman well, this would is say. So funny. This is so funny. I went to a, I took Derek to this BB King concert. I got to give credit where credit is due. Derek did go with me to a BB King concert in Jackson, and uh, you know when you have these headliners, of course you have all the local bands get up there first for a while, and they were pretty decent. But then BB King's band comes out, and I mean these guys are really good. And Derek leans over to me, and I, I, I should have written this down. Let's see if I can get it exactly. He leans over to me, and he says, an exponential increase in quality. <laughs> 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 Which I think being interpreted means that sounds pretty good. 
we'll, we'll have to infer just that. such a classic statement. An exponential, exponential increase in quality. Someone needs to give him a review column in a paper. <laughs> with, the, with those kinds of uh, words, he'd be oh, he's great. making a living. Yeah. You know, I, Derek is a recent friend, and I've got to say, even though he lives in Jackson, I hardly ever see him. Uh, I, I have really deeply, deeply appreciate Derek and, and our friendship. I, mm-hmm. I just think, I think the world of him. If only, if only he would get some complexity in his music taste, <laughs> then he would just be... I think he only owns one, one or two CDs and... Uh... <laughs> Oh, boy. Well, Steve, it's been a pleasure to have you join us. We really enjoyed uh, looking at this book and talking about it. We'd love to have you back on sometime to talk about your others, perhaps uh, Jesus Made in America. I know, Nick, you've been reading that and have been very uh, interested in in that book. So uh, It is. It's a... I just wanted to say to our listeners, it is a phenomenal book. I really, really appreciate it and hope our listeners will buy it. I think it it broadens your your horizon on understanding the context we're working in. So, Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, you know, it'd be fun to come. We could talk about that other blues guy, uh, Blind Jonathan Edwards. I know <laughs> Jeff has a lot. <laughs> He he sang a song. He, he, oh, why did I get kicked out of my church? <laughs> he had the Northampton Blues. Hey, Jeff, there you go. You could write the Northampton, Northampton Blues. Blues. And, and, uh, oh yeah. wow! I could see it. Come on, the well, I know the the real burning I mean, question for Jeff was what what hath Elvis to do with blues? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, right. I, uh, now see, I already know the answer to that. Oh, okay. See, I learned. I learned. You got me going. I learned Thomas Dorsey through Elvis. Yeah, yeah, right. I yes, uh, Peace in well, the Valley. You know, Peace uh, in the Valley. Sure, yeah. yeah. Jeff would also <laughs> like uh, <laughs> the references to Johnny Cash as well, The Man oh, in Black. Yeah. And so we'll point people back to the uh, book for that. There's a little section on Johnny Cash and why he wore black hey. and how that fits into what we've been speaking about. Well, this has been great, and yeah. uh, I'm I'm glad we were able to oh, talk about pleasure. something yeah, and kind of expand pleasure. on our usual subjects uh, in order to to bring some uh, culture in here. Is that the right word? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> not if you're Derek. Yeah, <laughs> he, oh, well. he would put culture in quote air quotes. Yeah, the word gets used <laughs> many different ways. Uh, I'd like to point people back to the website, of course. Uh, you can visit reformedforum.org. You can read the show notes, get the bibliography, and the discography this time. You can also find more information about our other programs and subscribe to our podcast feeds. Uh, if you'd like to get a hold of us, visit the contact page, or you can email us at ChristTheCenter at ReformedForum.org. We want to thank everyone for listening, and we look forward to having you back next time on Christ the Center. Christ the Center.